Welcome to the Body Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Kiara. You can expect new episodes each Wednesday that are educational, inspiring, and honest surrounding various women's health topics, spirituality, and so much more. The Body Wisdom Podcast was brought to life by integrating the physical and emotional body to deepen one's healing journey. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. You guys, I'm so excited for this episode today. I have been communicating with Jamie online on Instagram for, gosh, I feel like it's been a really long time now. (laughs) Now I'm face-to-face with Jamie. I've learned so much from her and her page, and I just love how passionate she is about fertility awareness and women's health. So thank you for coming on the show, Jamie. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing wonderful. Um, I love listening to your podcast, and so it's a real (laughs) honor to be here myself. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive deep into fertility awareness today and kind of like reigns true for you as well. Like you, you were currently expecting right now, right? Yeah. Through fertility awareness. That's right. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. How far along are you now? Uh, 13 weeks, but who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, congratulations. That's so exciting. It's so exciting. How, how is your heart doing today? Like, how do you feel? I'm just feeling incredible this entire pregnancy, which I know we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I've I've done a lot of learning and I'm learning about pregnancy itself, and that's just been so empowering. And so I'm just sitting here peaceful and comfortable and very happy. <laughs> Did you look at that? That's amazing. That's amazing. And you like, I love how you share on, on stories. You're like, every single time I get nauseous, like <laughs> during this trimester, you just reach for the oysters. And I'm like, no one does that. Like, I cannot no. explain it. I can't explain it. And people will be like, how do you eat that? And at this point, it's a positive association. Like, I know that that will help nausea whenever it comes up. And so I eat a can of oysters. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I've actually been loading up on the oysters myself. I was sick um, for, I feel like the majority of December, mm-hmm. like into January and recovering was just like horrible. Like there was a point where I was like, I don't know if I'll ever feel myself, feel Ugh, myself again. I just like the brain fog mm-hmm. and like the, the fatigue and just like this cloud over my head. And I was like oysters. So I just like ate like three packs of oysters at least a, a week. And it just, I swear that lifted me up out of it. I don't feel that way anymore. They're so powerful. That's, so. that's amazing. I'm happy to hear that. I know. They're really just little miracles in a can. Yeah, they are little miracles in a can. Would you look at that? I love that. Okay, Jamie. So for our listeners who don't follow you on mm-hmm. Instagram, could you start off by giving us a little bit of background and how you landed in this space? Yes, so I'm very happy to. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm really sort of excited for the discussion about fertility awareness today for sort of this reason, um, because I learned a, a method of fertility awareness um, before I got married um, and used it um, while I was married. Um, and then during that transition to trying for a baby um, very loosely. And, you know, we were very blessed that it happened the first cycle. Um, but I felt that I didn't have a lot of support after Um pregnancy with my method of fertility awareness. And at the time I felt like, and I still joke about this in order to 
find a method of fertility awareness, you needed to meet someone in a back alley and be handed a piece of paper with a handwritten phone number because I felt like there was there was no information about the methods available to you, um, who taught them. And so I was, you know, grateful to sort of fall into this world of Instagram and, you know, find a method that worked for me that I loved. Um, and then I became an educator in it because my mission was really to never let anyone else feel like that, right? To feel like they didn't have support from their instructor or that they didn't feel fully autonomous in their chosen method. Um, And so that's just sort of shaped my whole practice. Empowering women, regardless of what their intentions for pregnancy are, whether avoiding or achieving, um, you know, they have all the information they need. And of course, I'm there along their journey to support them. But, you know, I have a lot of students who, after their three sessions, I never hear from them again. And that's okay um, because, you know, that means I've done my job. Um, so, and then, of course, you know, I, there are now three years between these pregnancies. But when we began then switching to try for baby number two, fertility awareness was there. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that and just sort of the progesterone element, sort of monitoring your cycle markers. Um, That was something that I did in the couple of cycles before we tried. Um, And yeah, we were very blessed to, again, first cycle that we tried um, achieve your pregnancy. So it all kind of fits together nicely. (laughs) Yeah. And then you also have like a really good bit of knowledge surrounding like the nutrition piece too, just like with your own experience and like what you've learned too. I see you share a lot of that as well. And so I'm sure that integrates very beautifully at the same time. Absolutely. And you know, it has completely, it's been a journey through sort of my postpartum experience because it was so bad. Um, And yeah, it just sort of shaped the preparation for this pregnancy. And I'm I'm all self-taught. You know, I'm very grateful for the people I've connected with, including you, to sort of, um, you know, shape my knowledge of nutrition. Um, and it was kind of gratifying to work with an NTP um, and just see how I'd done on my own. And I was really sort of happy with, you know, what I was able to do um, just on my own, sort of listening to my body. Um, and that's been the biggest game changer with this pregnancy. I think it's really contributed to um, the reduced nausea, the higher energy. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how little we seem to be told in the conventional uh, medicine space when we're, you know, in our prenatal sessions with, you know, whoever we're seeing. Um, I didn't receive any sort of guidance except don't eat eggs or meat, lunch meat or shellfish. Wow. Good luck. And I'm like, I didn't even know how many calories I was supposed to be eating. And so that was that was really tough last time, but you know, this time just feeling more empowered, um, has really shaped my pregnancy experience. That's amazing. So beautiful. And I feel like that's, that's why you're here to empower, help women empower themselves Mm -hmm. for a better pregnancy, postpartum, things like that. Because yeah, I feel like they, there's a lot of, at least a lot of my friends, they're like, oh my God, you want to have a baby? (laughs) Like that sounds terrifying or like you want to have a home birth that sounds even more terrifying mm-hmm. and you know all these things that we've been led to believe when our bodies are so beautifully designed for this um 
and we're not being told these things growing up and in doctor's offices and things like that and like how beautiful it can be. And it's just something that you just have to go through. Like, yeah, I will be very honest. I mean, coming off my last pregnancy during that pregnancy, right after I swore I would never have any children again. And it really took sort of processing that birth trauma, processing my birth story, nourishing myself, feeling myself, seeing my hormone levels change, where suddenly, you know, that became something I was open to in a way I thought I never would be for the rest of my life. Um, And, you know, genuinely, I was telling my husband today how excited I am for this time around, because I'm ready to just like, be wild. Like, watch out. I might roar during labor. I don't know. Like I'm going to like experience this and it's, it's unreal. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm so excited for it. So, so would you mind sharing like what, what postpartum was like for you? Like, do you feel like diving into that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know. Just so we know. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, so I had, you know, I was, I, I'm big on language. I like to be mindful of my language. And I was about to tell you that I was lucky to have a vaginal birth. Mm. But I I think it's a we're allowed to say I wasn't happy with what happened. Mm. Um and you know, the more reading I do, the more I realize it wasn't a physiological birth at all. It was a vaginal birth, but it was, you know, with an epidural on my back on my back pushing for two and a half hours when I couldn't feel anything. And so I never experienced that rush of hormones after pregnancy or Mm -hmm. after labor. Um, And I got home from the hospital and the first thing I did was sit on the couch and cry. And I I couldn't Mm. tell you why it wasn't a happy cry. It was a cry. Wow. Um, And so, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on sort of how both my daughter and I processed the, the drugs in my system, sort of the whole experience. Um, but I, I had borderline postpartum depression after that. Um, there were a lot of times where I would just cry. Again, I got caught up in like the postpartum messaging on the body's bouncing back, right? Um, you know, we're told we're not supposed to gain a lot of weight in pregnancy. And then all of a sudden, whatever weight you did gain is supposed to be gone. So um, I didn't eat. Um, you know, you don't sleep very well with a newborn if you're not eating. Um, and yeah, so that went on for about the first year. And then I realized like things had to change. Right. And I started eating, um, and I gained weight and I got my cycle back. And I, I feel like I found myself after that, you know, that's really when I I had the energy to jump into a fertility awareness instructor program. Um, yeah. And you know, things have been on the upswing since then. And who would have thought it was just, you know, eating and processing what that whole experience had been um, that really helped. So yeah, this, I mean, I'm already sort of strategizing about what that freezer is going to look like postpartum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have the book, The First 40 Days, and I'm excited to implement oh, yes. that. So. That's amazing. Yeah. And what did you envision, like, you know, during your first pregnancy? Like, did you envision your birth? Were you that into it? Or, like, no. did you, were you just not, like, I didn't even think that far into it? 
absolutely not. And I, I still, it shakes me to my core because I once opened a Q&A box and someone asked for advice from first time moms. And this was before I had sort of started processing what my birth was. And I had to come to terms with the fact I'd given birth and I had no idea what had happened, right? I hadn't understood any of it. Um, I didn't understand what was normal. I didn't understand what interventions had happened to me, what the risks of those could have been, what the effect of them was on labor. I didn't know any of it. Um, I'd gone to one class through the hospital that was essentially just like a breathing class, I realized, Um, you know, with like vague terms about the stages of labor, but no discussion on the interventions that would be suggested at these times, the effects that those could have. I didn't even know what the third stage of labor is. Like, do you know what the third stage of labor is? It's the birth of the placenta and you'd never know, (laughs) you know, and even that can be like, can include like heavy intervention. And that's where we end up with hemorrhaging. Like that's one of the main risks for, you know, pregnancy and delivery. Um, And it all has to do with sort of how hands-on your practitioner is during that time. Um, Yeah, I don't... I hate to say that I was robbed of a birth experience because I didn't have a pl- a real plan going in, but I am very excited for this one because I know more. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh. I mean, the one yeah. thing that drove it home for me was one day on Twitter, I saw this beautiful picture of a baby next to his placenta. Like, And, you know, to get to that point, the person would have had to give birth had this baby on her and then maybe like gone up to get a shower and that placenta would have been untouched that whole time, right? Like that had to happen in order for a picture like that to occur. And I thought I was, I thought I was so crunchy asking them to delay the cord clamping. And I thought that meant minutes, right? And here's this baby who must have been attached to the placenta for hours. And suddenly I realized that like everything I thought I had known about birth, like I had no idea, right? Like if, if this is what I thought my birth plan included and this is what delayed cord clamping looked like, what on earth did I experience? And so that sort of helped to give me that push. Wow. Very empowering. I'd say that's awesome. Absolutely. When you have that information for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's no looking back. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So what about cycles returning for you postpartum? How did that look? Absolutely. Um, And this is one of the reasons I became a fertility awareness educator, actually, was my cycles postpartum. There you go. (laughs) Um, So yeah, because for me at about five months postpartum, which is very interesting, um, I started to see a return of cervical mucus. But we know that postpartum because of the interactions of estrogen and prolactin, you're in a special circumstance then, right? Not every episode of mucus you see is obviously going to be associated with ovulation. This sort of patchy mucus can go on for months. And it did for me. Um, It was eight months of just patches here and there of mucus, but my body didn't actually ovulate. You know, I didn't bleed either, um, but nothing happened. Um, and at the time I had an educator who was a man who was 60 some years old. And he asked me, 
well, are you sure you're not pregnant again? And I was furious. I thought, that's apparently your job because I didn't feel that I had, you know, enough information to chart on my own, you know, without a lot of help. And I, I told my husband, never again. I'm learning this. I'm going to teach myself something. Um, so I found the symptothermal method, SymptoPro, and I am sort of excited to jump into that side of the conversation too. Um, just sort of your options. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I charted with that on my own until I saw a return of fertility at 13 months. Um, at that point, my daughter was fully weaned, um, which I'm sure helped me because I just wasn't eating enough sort of right at that time. Um, I started eating more that, that summer. Um, and yeah, then I really, my cycles returned to normal, um, pretty soon after that, which again, because she was weaned, um, I think that made sort of the return of cycles smoother than some women who continue to nurse may see, um, some variation in their cycles, even after return of fertility. Um, so just something to keep in mind. Okay. So how did you, so you, you became a fertility awareness educator and then your cycle returned not too long after that. So I, um, I taught myself a method. Um, there are a lot of resources for that and me being the type of person I am, I had spreadsheets with method rules that I was comparing them and trying to find the best fit for me. Um, so this would have been right a couple months before my cycle returned, I charted. I think my first chart was like 80, 90 days long as I was sort of charting, watching for ovulation. Um, and then I charted my cycles, my actual menstrual cycles for about six months before um, starting a program okay. to become certified. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. So we keep talking about the different types <laughs> of fertility awareness. So let's get into those because yes. I feel like a lot of people don't even know. I know. And I was so, I mean, my heart is saying when I saw this, because I'm like, thank you. I am so excited to get the concept of fertility awareness out there. But I feel like people don't realize there are types of fertility awareness. Um, and they may find something that works better for them. So um, of course, the first one you you always hear about when you hear fertility awareness method, it's almost synonymous, is just the symptothermal method. So this is um, tracking cervical mucus, um, often cervical mucus, maybe walking sensation, um, cervical position, and temperature. Um, and so the key for a successful fertility awareness method is you need to have an estrogen sign and a progesterone sign, right? So you can ensure you're getting a rise in hormones that are going to result in ovulation, but then you confirm that ovulation. And so that's why a symptothermal method is successful because mucus shows you your fertile window has opened. Temperature helps you to know that it's closed. That's why temperature-only devices aren't a whole lot of help because they don't tell you when your fertile window opens. Um, and that's where people run into accidental pregnancies. Um, so examples of this would be um, FEMM, F-E-M-M, -M, um, symptothermal method. Um, Justice is a method. Um, I think they are based in Canada. Um, and SymptoPro, which is the one I teach. 
Um, and then um, NFPTA is another sort of symptothermal organization. So there are a lot of different methods that you can learn, but they're going to use temperature and cervical mucus. Um, another route you can go, and some people really like this, is symptohormonal. So you're looking at cervical mucus um, and hormone test strips or a monitor, like the clear blue monitor. So, you know, okay. you pee in a cup, you test with the monitor, the monitor tells you if your hormone levels are high or if you hit peak. Um, and so Marquette is the big one for that. Um, people love this because, you know, the monitor sort of tells them, you know, your hormones are high today, you've peaked, and there's a protocol for it to determine when ovulation has occurred and the fertile window is closed. Um, um, Fem can also be symptohormonal. So some people choose not to use the temperature um, aspect. In that case, you know, LH is sort of what they use as part of their protocol for determining um, when ovulation has occurred. Um, and I know we'll talk a lot about LH testing today too. Yeah, yeah. that was going to be my next question yeah. <laughs> to you after you wrap up because, yeah, I mean that's a lot of women are using them, but it's like, are they mm-hmm. using them correctly? So could you could you explain that? Yes. Um, you want to dive into that now because I have a lot of thoughts on it. Y- yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, let me just say the last. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Last type because that way we can round off this conversation instead okay. of coming back. So the um, the other type of fertility awareness method would be cervical mucus only. So that's either, you know, observing mucus on a tissue or walking sensation. Um, the two big ones there are the Billings ovulation method and Creighton. Um, the point I wanted to make by like naming all of these organizations is to let people know that there are options, there are organizations And there are medical components to some of these methods that can really help with fertility treatment. So, for instance, Creighton, um, which is a cervical mucus-only method, trains doctors in something called NAPRO technology. So they specialize in infertility with the chart in mind. So um, um, I'm – can share the link with you. There's a um, nonprofit that's just started that sort of breaks all these down for people, discusses these medical components, and links to an instructor directory where, you know, people can find information on this because I feel like we don't have that. So yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. (laughs) That's all I wanted to get out into the world. There are options. Yeah. Oh my God. Like I had no idea that there were so many options yeah. <laughs> available to us. So it's really, I guess, just dependent on the kind of person mm-hmm. that you're working with. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Because, you know, one thing I love about SymptoPro is we track walking sensation as well as external mucus. And I know I'm definitely going to get into this with you, but, um, you know, a lot of my clients are coming off of birth control and they don't see a lot of external mucus. And that can be really discouraging if you're told, for fertility awareness, you need to see mucus so you can track it. Well, even if my clients don't see external mucus on tissue, they can feel it. And so it's important to sort of take that into consideration. Yeah. When you're considering the signs that you want to track. Um, so yeah, there, you know, there's something, there's really something for everyone. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into the LH test strips. What are these Everything. When do you use them? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So when I have clients, my heart just 
leaps for joy because in most cases, when someone tells their doctor they want to try to conceive, the doctor says, you know, they may say, here's some, you know, ovulation predictor kits. I'll see you in a year. And that's all the information someone gets. So LH stands for luteinizing hormone. Um, It's a hormone released by your pituitary gland around the time of ovulation. um, You know, there's some discussion on whether progesterone or estrogen is sort of the signal for this hormone, but it doesn't matter. Um, LH is released in a very brief surge. That surge, you know, generally lasts 24 to 36 hours. Um, And these urine test strips, right? So it's something you take like a pregnancy test, you pee in a cup, and then you test with the strip. It's calibrated to um, read positive when your luteinizing hormone hits a certain value, right? Um, And so LH is important because it helps saturate that follicle that's going to rupture and release an egg. And LH is responsible for helping luteinize that follicle to become the corpus luteum and produce progesterone. And so that short peak is going to precede ovulation, which makes it useful for ensuring that you ovulate, right? Um, They're very accurate. I think about 97% of the time for women not dealing with fertility issues, when you get a positive, you are going to ovulate at some point. Here's my issue with them. Using them alone, because of course it's, it's useful data to have. When you're just told to use an LH strip, and you know nothing else about your cycle, when are you supposed to take it? When are, <laughs> when are you supposed to start testing? You know, especially yeah. for women who are coming off of hormonal birth control, right. where we, there is a clear, um, there, there's clear evidence that, you know, these women are going to have longer cycles for, you know, however many cycles as their bodies adjust. When are they going to test? When are they supposed to test? Um, and so using LH alone without any other information about your menstrual cycle just leaves you in the dark. Um, you don't know when you're supposed to test. Um, it can be extremely overwhelming to try to test two times a day for like an endless amount of time. You would, you would just get overwhelmed and you would give up and then you may miss it because it is a brief surge. Um, not only that, Um, Women who experience um, conditions like PCOS, they're going to have higher LH than, you know, someone with normal menstrual cycles. So they're going to get a lot of false positives. What are they supposed to do with that information if they are are tracking nothing else about their cycle? Um, And then we sort of wade into deeper waters. um, and there is this phenomenon called a luteinized unruptured follicle. So great. Now we can have follicles that don't ovulate, right? They don't rupture, but they're partially luteinized. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you don't wow. ovulate that cycle. What on earth are you supposed to do with that? Um, yeah. And, you know, a trained instructor would know sort of the characteristics of these things to help, you know, someone identify them and determine if a cycle was ovulatory. Um, but... That's my issue with LH. When when a client has learned how to chart their cycle, recognizes the signs of, you know, higher hormone levels, a rise in fertility, 
they are going to have much more success timing those LH tests. So they only need a couple of them and then they get their positive. Um, one other thing I wanted to say is that a positive LH test, when, they, when they've looked in studies and they've compared positive LH to um, ultrasound confirmed ovulation, they've found that that positive often precedes ovulation by only 17 to 20 hours. So if women are waiting until they get a positive LH, they're missing some of their most fertile days for conception because <laughs> you can look at study after study of sort of the fertile window, the optimal time for intercourse. And what you're going to find is the two days prior to ovulation and ovulation itself are some of the highest days for chances of conception. Um, and if you're waiting for your positive LH, you're missing out on a lot of useful time um, for intercourse. Um, and so, yeah, um, you know, maybe after this, we can sort of get into a discussion on why cervical mucus is such a useful sign for trying to conceive and fertility awareness. Um, but I just find that fixating on LH and an LH positive and people feel disappointed if, you know, I, I have seen people express disappointment when, you know, they've had intercourse a couple days before the positive, but they're not able to have it on the positive. And I just want to scream that they've hit some of the optimal days for fertility and they don't know that, right? They don't know that there are six days of um, our fertile window and the days leading up to ovulation are prime days for conception because of the role of cervical mucus. Um, and I actually found an interesting study in 2020. Women were given just LH tests and no, no information about their fertile window. Only 44% of them were pregnant by six months. Um, when women were taught to use the symptothermal method, 81% of them were pregnant by six months. Wow. So, and they found that the women with LH kits, sometimes they didn't even have intercourse during their fertile window when just using LH. So mm. so do you use LH at all with clients or are you kind of like? That's a great question. Yeah. So um, SymptoPro doesn't use it as one of our signs. That's right. But I always give clients sort of, the information about timing when using them, because I've certainly used them in my cycle too. It's fun to have the data. Um, and so the, the important thing is just to emphasize that, you know, we, we wait until we see a change to a developing pattern of mucus indicating a rise in estrogen where that LH is sort of, um, that LH peak is likely to occur. And so they'll start testing then and catch their, um, LH peak. Okay. Beautiful. And you use, um, prove test strips too. <laughs> I <yeah>? do. Yeah. <laughs> Could you tell, like, as I always explain the difference like to my clients and I would love for everyone else to hear too. Yeah, absolutely. So prove, um, prove actually sells LH test too. So, oh, um, okay. yeah, yeah, just, so there's a, um, a kit they have that's like confirm, a predict and confirm, I think is what it's called. So obviously like predicting ovulation would be, you know, getting your LH peak, knowing ovulation is coming relatively soon. Um, and then they have progesterone tests. So 
this can be a little confusing, especially when you're trying to interpret one of them because it's a little different than, say, a home pregnancy test. Um, the progesterone test is measuring the metabolite of progesterone, PDG. So this is what progesterone is broken down to and excreted in the urine. Um, and so Prove has you take a baseline test sort of at the beginning of your cycle. It doesn't matter, just sometime before ovulation has occurred so that um, you can, you know, log what a negative test looks like for you in their app. Um, and what you'll see is that it's, it's counterintuitive. A negative test has two lines, like a positive pregnancy test would. <laughs> And I know, I know. (laughs) I'm like, a positive test is just going to have the control line. That's because PDG is a very small hormone. And so, just with the way that the assay works, a negative test means that the PDG crowds out the dye. And so, the dye can't run on the test. Um, And so, what you're supposed to do is either based on your method protocol, um, you can test, you know, a couple days after peak um, to confirm that ovulation has happened. But what Prove does, and I think it's a really powerful tool, is they have you basically start testing PDG in the middle of your luteal phase. So that's the time after ovulation until you bleed. That's called the luteal phase. Um, And progesterone levels should peak halfway through that luteal phase. So they'll have you start testing around six days after your um, positive LH test, and they'll have you test for four days. Um, The reason they do that is because they cite literature that shows PDG levels in early pregnancy um, can predict, you know, how likely a loss is, right? So they find that for women with very low PDG levels, you know, there's a greater chance of miscarriage. And I, you know, I am really passionate about progesterone myself because I supplemented my first pregnancy. Um, you know, I I was very fortunate to have a nurse practitioner who was um, very familiar with progesterone and progesterone testing. And when I had implantation cramps, but I, you know, I was worried that it might be something worse. Um, she tested my levels and had me start supplementing progesterone. You know, my levels were low, which I'm sure you see with clients all the time is not uncommon with women these days. Um, and so what what Prove can do, you know, some women aren't fortunate enough to have a pr- practitioner accessible who is willing to test progesterone because it is sort of still controversial. Um, as obvious as the link may be between losing a pregnancy and having low progesterone levels, um, it's still sort of controversial. And so this gives people the opportunity to test progesterone at home, and then they can bring that information to their doctor, you know, if they get a positive pregnancy test and they're concerned about their low PDG levels, it opens up a conversation because they have this data that they can show their doctor. Um, so it, it's really incredible. Um, and, you know, there is a very good correlation between serum progesterone levels and PDG, which is the urinary hormone. Um, and actually, because serum progesterone can fluctuate so wildly, even within like a 
couple minutes. Like it can fluctuate. And so you may not get the best picture of your progesterone levels if you're just taking like one blood draw in the middle of your cycle. But doing something like this where you're testing, you know, an overnight hold of a urinary hormone or urinary metabolite, it can give you a good picture of sort of what your daily progesterone level is like over the course of a couple days. Okay. I know that's a lot, but this is a complicated test. Yeah, but it it is helpful, especially if someone is is trying to conceive or even just like, you know, becoming more familiar with their cycle. But Mm -hmm. I know we wanted to kind of dig into fertility awareness for conception today. Um, So what are some other things that may need to be taken into consideration when it comes to trying to conceive? Absolutely. Let's talk number one about birth control. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I think the trend, at least that I'm seeing with my clients, is the clients I have who are trying to conceive are ones who are coming off long-term use of hormonal birth control, right? And so ma- their cycles are somewhat irregular. They want to understand what what is going on with their cycle, how to chart it so that they can actually target it usefully, right? Because um, I think I think the first thing to do is sort of jump into a discussion on what contraceptives do to sort of our reproductive system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's a huge red flag if you have a practitioner who says, just stay on the pill, just keep your IUD until you're ready to conceive. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, well, first of all, you know, the whole point of contraception is to prevent a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Most contraceptives are going to do that by disrupting ovulation in some way, right? So whether that's throwing off the HPO axis, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, um, so disrupting that connection between the brain and the ovaries, you know, by introducing synthetic hormones. So your brain says, okay, <laughs> we're, we're clearly good here. Um, I'll catch you guys later. Um, and actually, if you look at the ovaries of a woman on contraception, they're going to appear similar to someone in menopause because you're not producing those ovarian hormones yourself. And I have pissed off a lot of people on the internet by saying that, but it's true. There's nothing false about that. You're not producing your own hormones. Um, obviously, you know, on contraception that doesn't allow you to ovulate because there's there, I think about 60% of people still ovulate on progestin only pills. Um, and certainly the Marina, I think people can continue to ovulate on the hormonal IUD. Um, okay. Ovarian, right. Ovarian activity is a big one. Mm -hmm. Your, your endometrium is another one. And this comes into play just in terms of how likely a pregnancy is to occur, right? So because we have these the stimulus of synthetic hormones and no ovulation, the endometrium or the tissue that lines the uterus is going to stay very thin. And that's going to take some cycles to build back. And so, you know, some people experience that as very light periods coming off the pill, but you have to think about the impact on implantation because the whole role of progesterone is to help enrich and sort of thin out a very juicy, thick endometrium that was laid down by estrogen. And so if we're dealing with a very thin endometrium, that's not conducive to a pregnancy, you know. So we may see that in the first couple of cycles 
um, coming off birth control. Another one that's also highly controversial um, is that contraceptives can stimulate the production of G-type cervical mucus. Um, What I mean by that. So your body produces mucus in response to estrogen, which we're very familiar with, right? That's sort of the thing we're tracking. Um, But you actually produce a second type of mucus in your cycle, which is um, produced under the influence of progesterone. So that's what's produced by these things called G-type cervical crypts. Um, It's a thick mucus plug. That's why we feel dry after ovulation. Now, there's a work by a um, Swedish scientist, and I have yet to get my hands on the paper because we suspect it might be in Swedish, but his work seems to show that for women who have been on contraception for a long time, um, those cervical crypts that have been stimulated, those like G-type thick mucus plug um, cervical crypts may be more abundant than the cervical crypts responsible for estrogenic mucus, right? The mucus we need for conception. Um, And so he argued that the pill ages the cervix and that it converts these estrogen cervical crypts into progesterone. Um, I, I don't have... I don't have any other papers or research to sort of support that. Um, that's something that some fertility awareness methods will tout. They'll, you know, talk about this aging of the cervix. But it it is known that women coming off of birth control can see a reduced mucus quality for a couple cycles. And I experience it with my clients all the time. It's something I see very um, often. You know, there's less cervical mucus as their bodies are, you know, producing their own ovarian hormones, um, you know, and those cervical crypts that are responsible for the estrogen type mucus are being activated again. Um, So that's definitely a fact, you know, whether or not the pill may age the cervix, but it's something people should take into consideration. The fact that we're going to see a reduced mucus quality that has been shown in very recent literature um, that, You know, it may take a while for those cycle lengths to regulate again because you may see delayed ovulation for a couple cycles, um, which is why it's important to track mucus so you know when to time your LH strips if you want to incorporate that in your practice. Um, And, um, you know, recent literature has shown you see the longest delay in return to fertility um, for injectable contraceptives um, and patch contraceptives. Um, the IUD as well, some of those can, you know, you can be looking at, in some cases, five to eight cycles, some studies quote, you know, 15. Um, And it's not to say you should be afraid of your fertility never returning, because absolutely by, you know, the 12 month mark, we see very similar pregnancy rates in people, you know, transitioning off birth control and, um, who haven't used any sort of contraception. Um, my <laughs> um, one thing about those studies that I've seen, I have yet to find a study that looks at populations using birth control for as long as we see women using it now, which is something I take issue with. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we should still see a return to normal fertility 
we just need to make sure mentally, you know, we're prepared for the buffer period that we're, we're not often told about, right? We've been told every day of our lives, we're fertile, we're going to get pregnant if we're not on something long acting, or that we're taking daily. Mm-hmm. And then you get off and you feel betrayed. <laughs> because it's not true, right? It can take a while for fertility to return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a, a history with birth control? No, I, no. I have never been on um, any form of birth control. Um, yeah. So fertility yeah. awareness was sort of my first and only. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Form That's of amazing. pregnancy avoidance. But I'm sure you've had a lot of clients who have been on birth control and 100%. maybe for years and years. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen clients on birth control for like at least like six years, longer, 10, you know, just depending where they're at. 15, 20. Yeah. 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 It's been a long time. So that's awesome that you, you tapped into that. So birth control, um, is a big role. Mm -hmm. And then what other things are needing to be taken into consideration when it comes to conception and the endometrium that you mentioned? So another, Another big talking point would just be tracking your cycle, right? Like we're only fertile for six months out of our cycle, right? Why? Because, you know, an egg is only going to be viable for 12 to 24 hours, but in good quality cervical mucus, sperm can live for three to five days. So you can, you can, have intercourse on a Monday and conceive on a Friday. You know, um, both of my pregnancy charts look like my fertile window opened. You know, we had intercourse on one day and then five days later I, ov- I ovulated and I conceived. Um, so yeah, it's incredible. The body is incredible. And that's why I, I just, it breaks my heart to see women discouraged when they miss their LH peak because they should be told that when cervical mucus is present, that's a sign of fertility and sperm can survive, right? So there's a chance of conception with intercourse even a couple days before the LH peak. Um, you know, so, um, I think I just want to focus on cervical mucus for a minute, right? Um, so, you know, why is there an emphasis on this when trying to conceive? First of all, I have clients who are just confused about how to observe it when to observe it, like how to categorize it. Like these are things that, you know, just learning a method can really cut through the noise, give you confidence, tell you when your fertile window opens, sort of help you to watch for that changing, developing pattern of fertile quality. Um, And cervical mucus has been shown time and time again to be a reliable marker of ovulation because peak day, when you're looking at peak day versus ultrasound confirmed ovulation, we can be looking at, you know, plus or minus a day within within plus or minus a day of peak seeing ovulation. And on it, um, if we're looking at this, you know, in terms of statistical probability, those are the days where you're most likely to ovulate around those days of your peak quality cervical mucus. So just knowing what that means, how to look for that can be so helpful. Um, But then not only that, you know, what's the value of cervical mucus? 
like I mentioned, it can keep sperm alive because it's basic and without it, our vagina is very acidic. It actually helps to um, prepare sperm for fertilization. Um, it can keep sperm alive within the cervical crypts until ovulation approaches. Um, it filters out sperm. It helps shuttle sperm where it needs to go into the um, uterus and then up the fallopian tubes. It does a lot. And really without it, you know, we can't conceive. Um, so that's just something so important to know. You know, it's really underappreciated, but it's one of those magical ingredients for conception. Yeah. And a lot of women that I work with are so um, like far removed from their bodies. They're mm -hmm. not even sure what to look for. And they're also not sure how to like even check. Or like, is it what shows up on my underwear? Like, could you share a little bit more about that too? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Because I have these conversations a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So it is going to depend on your chosen method. Some mm. methods allow for internal checks of cervical mucus. Others okay. don't. Didn't um, know that. So cool. E exactly. <laughs> um, so for my method, SymptoPro, we allow for internal checks of the cervix, and some women like to do that for the body literacy aspect, um, and some people will check for mucus at the cervix, but importantly, our method um, uses external mucus, so mucusine on tissue, not underwear, um, mucusine on tissue when wiping. That's how we determine peak day, right? That's how we... Um, mark mucus and watch for that change from, you know, something egg white, watery, stretchy, clear um, to something not that, right? Either we dry up or we, we see a decrease in mucus quality and then drying up. Um, so we don't set that peak by the mucus seen internally. Some methods allow it. Um, other methods would say we don't do any internal checks because... <laughs> Our bodies are amazing, and you can get even more details and talk about these things called the pockets of Shaw that are <laughs> structures in the vagina that contain manganese and help you to feel dry during your infertile time. And, you know, some methods would say checking internally will disturb those and, you know, you won't feel dry when you should. It can get very complicated, and so it's always just important to choose a method and sort of follow their protocols. Um, but I would definitely say, whether checking internally or externally, um, I would I would always refer to external tissue, um, mucus as mucus seen on tissue and not something seen in the underwear because you can have discharge that's not cervical mucus. And it's mm -hmm. easiest to distinguish that, you know, on tissue paper rather than playing a guessing game with things in your underwear, how long it's been there what on earth it is, it's partially dry, you know, that doesn't give you a lot of useful information. Wow. And is this before you use the restroom, like before you pee, or is it just like at any point of the day? That's a good question. <laughs> That's such a good question. Um, my method would say both, both before okay. and after using the restroom. And then we always have people check at night too. So at the end of the night, um, we recommend you know, bearing down as if you were having another bowel movement just to see if you can, you know, observe anything new oh, on the tissue yeah. that you may not have seen during the day. Wow. Um, but yeah, 
some clients only see stuff before they use the restroom and some only see it after. So we catch them all. Can I ask, like, when you were getting into all of this, did it feel like, oh my gosh, there's like so much? And like, how did you find a routine that works for you? Like, mm-hmm. and then does it just become like secondhand nature? Because I have a lot of clients, there's like, oh my gosh, that just feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does, it does feel overwhelming. Um, and I, I feel like the practice at first can feel like, it takes up more time than it should because you're checking mm, and you're mm, overanalyzing the tissue. But it, it's really just a matter of developing habits because then it's like, you remember to wipe before and after using the restroom. You check the tissue. You've seen this stuff before, right? You can easily identify the characteristics and move on. Um, so, you know, the initial learning stage can be overwhelming. That's why, you know, I teach multiple sessions with a client because there's no way you could process all this information in one sitting. Um, And then it just becomes a daily habit and it takes, you know, minutes of your day. So it's really just about if this is what you think is the best fit for you. And a lot of times I, I have highly motivated clients because they've tried everything, right? They haven't found a good fit for them and they like this non hormonal option. And so they make it work. Um, but even that, you know, you're like, I'm just going to do it. Eventually it does become so simple and so quick that it's just a matter of remembering to chart for the day. Yeah. And I can kind of apply that to nutrition principles Mm -hmm. and learning a new way of eating and Mm -hmm. living all these things. Like it's not going to happen overnight. So it's just like a daily practice and it can feel really overwhelming when you try to do it all. And just really having that, that, um, just idea in your head, like, okay, I'm I'm here now and I'm Mm -hmm. not going to get to where I need to be tomorrow. So just really baby stepping in. I think there's such a benefit to like working with a practitioner. I need to do this myself. So I need to talk to you (laughs) because like I 100% believe in that. And just like having someone who has the expertise, has the knowledge, has the wisdom to share with you, knows her stuff really well. And then she can just share that with you in a way that's really, um, I don't know, just small, but like mm-hmm. really helpful at the same time. Yeah. So that's I'm, awesome. I'm really glad that you brought that up just because fertility, like body literacy should be a tool that we all have, right? We should all have access to it. But a lot of times, you know, when we're jumping into this and we're so excited, we're recommended to buy a piece of femtech and purchase the enormous taking charge of your fertility. Now, I'm sure you've flipped through that book and you've looked at the mucus categories and I have clients who come to me and, you know, I'm excited to hear they've been charting before they met with me. And then we sit down to look at their charts and they're so patchy because it's so overwhelming. And they're like, there are four mucus categories. How am I supposed to fit what I'm seeing into these boxes? And I just didn't chart anything because I was confused And so I think you're right. Like everyone deserves to have this knowledge and everyone can learn it, but it's just so helpful to cut through the noise. And like, even if you don't choose SymptoPro as your method, just having a method that gives you rules, that gives you categories and yeah, like shows you the situations for all sorts of things you could see and just sets you up with those tools. It can be so useful. 
That's awesome, Jamie. Thank you so much for your knowledge and wisdom and just coming on here and just like spitting facts with <laughs> such a passionate heart. I really appreciate you. Um, where can we keep up with you? Where can we find you? What's next for you? Give us yeah, the deets. Absolutely. So um, I'm I'm currently just at following my body on Instagram. Um, you can keep up with my daily escapades and weird food plates and goofy toddler stories there, I guess. Um, I do share a lot of studies or articles that I'm reading. Yes, um, I love that. Because I feel like it's useful for people to have. If you scroll through my highlights, there are like random meals that I eat, cycle moods and sort of thoughts about living cyclically. My mucus highlight seems to be a big popular one. I often get I love when you share your mucus. Yeah. <laughs> I am so here for it. Yeah. People need to see that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just it my you know, my goal is to normalize it. Um and so yeah, I'm I'm teaching one on one right now. I find a lot of value in having that time with clients, being able to answer their questions and their situations. Um I'm trying to sort of make time for myself while I'm experiencing this pregnancy. And so my client load in the future is going to be a little lighter, but it is something I'm passionate about. So I always take on a little more than I think I should. Um, so feel free to reach out to me. Not you specifically, Kiara, but yeah. anyone listening. Um, but you too. Oh, I will. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. You can, okay. you can find it all there. Beautiful. And I will link all of the resources that you mentioned in um, the show notes as well as where to find you. So thank you again, Jamie. I appreciate Mm -hmm. you. And until next time. Bye. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If the episode resonated with you, feel free to share it with a friend and give the podcast a five-star review and rating as this allows us to grow and continue having incredible guests on the show. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time.